Good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Exodus 7. We're going to be camping out in chapter 7 through 10 this morning. Um, but so far, here, here's what we've seen in the book of Exodus, all right? So we've seen that, that God's people are currently enslaved by Egypt, the most powerful, the wealthiest country in that day, and God's people are experiencing a harsh living by the strong hand of Pharaoh. And this morning, we're actually going to find ourselves in a very pivotal part of this story, because last week, we saw Pharaoh's initial response when Moses goes before him and says, let my people go. Pharaoh said these words in Exodus 5, 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Some bold words, okay? Bold words to say back to God. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, how would God respond to a comment like that? The text that we're talking through this morning we're going to be hitting on the first nine plagues that God brings about on the land of Egypt. And many writers actually differentiate the first nine from the last one and the significance that the last one has. So we're going to zero in on those first nine. And as we look at this incredibly famous and incredibly powerful story of these plagues, there's going to be one characteristic that we see very clearly about who God is. And that is that we are going to see that we serve a God of kindness. And what happens when you come into contact with a God like that? How do you see that in a story about plagues? Okay, we're going to get there, but the way that we're going to get there, we're not actually going to walk chronologically through this story. We're going to spend some time zeroing in on three different main characters in this story. So we're going to look at the power of God, we're going to look at the pride of Pharaoh, and we're going to look at the protection of God's people. So point one, throw it on the screen, power of God. Here we go. Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, and the, ch the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Okay, so God sends... Two dudes, Moses and Aaron, who tally up to about 163 years of age, into Pharaoh with this command, let my people go. And I want to point out a couple quick things. So it says he's going to let these people go by great acts of judgment. That's what we see in the text. But another thing that I want to point out is in the text, it says that God states what he will do, but God also states how Pharaoh will Respond. Did you see that in verse 3? It says, And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So God, being all-knowing, is sitting and telling Moses, Hey, go and tell Pharaoh these things. 
but he's not even going to listen to you. Be ready for that. And five times throughout these chapters, as Moses continually goes before Pharaoh, it says that Pharaoh did not listen as the Lord had said. And so one thing that we see right away is that as chaos ensues in Egypt, God is in complete control of everything. He even knows how Pharaoh will respond. Nothing catches him by surprise. How comforting is it that we serve a God that no matter what surprises come in your life, he does not flinch to those things. He remains in control, and so whatever is currently happening in your life, or whenever troubles come your way, you know that you serve a God who's in control of everything that takes place. God is in complete control. So that's one thing that we see. Another thing that we see is one of the reasons why God brings about the plagues in Egypt. Right in verse 5, it says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord? I don't know him. God is essentially saying, After these plagues, you will know who I am. He is showing his power on display to the people of Egypt. And so he begins going through the different plagues. And I'm going to run through these pretty quickly. But the first plague, God turns the Nile into blood. And so if you look at verse 21, it says, And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Okay, so it later says, that the Egyptians were literally digging by every source of water, trying to find one source of fresh water that they could actually drink that wasn't yet blood. Okay, so we're going to move on to the second plague. He sends a flood of frogs, and I just, I just want you to listen to these words and imagine yourself in this scene, all right? So it says, The Nile shall swarm with frogs, this is 8, verses 3 and 4, that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frog shall come up on you and your people and on all of your servants. Can you imagine that? Okay, you wake up in the morning and you're like, is that my spouse like cuddling up to me? No, it's Kermit and all of his friends coming to flood your bed, right? And so then you're freaking out. You're like, okay, they're, they're all up in my bed. Let me get out. I'm going to get a change of clothes and leave. They're flooding your closet. You go down in your kitchen. They're there too. They're in your oven. They're in your KitchenAid. Everything. It doesn't matter where you go in the land of Egypt. Frogs have taken over. And here's what I love about this part of the story. Because it says that the magicians, by their secret arts, produce frogs as well. And this was the last of the plague that they could reproduce. So they made it two in. Uh, here's the funny thing about that. Egypt didn't need any more frogs, right? They needed those to be removed. And so even their best attempt to stand up to God made the problem worse for themselves. The third plague, gnats are everywhere. Okay, the magicians just give up here. They're like, all right, this must be the finger of God to bring something like gnats to swarm this city. The fourth one, flies to fill their houses and to cover the ground. They couldn't even see the ground beneath them. The fifth, all of the livestock, which is their main source of income, died in that 
day. The sixth, boils covering the skin of the Egyptians. The seventh, a hailstorm that chapter 9 describes as massive amounts of hail and fire. A storm so great that has never been seen before or never will be seen again takes over the land of Egypt. The eighth plague, locusts eat whatever food is left on their trees and fields. The ninth plague, a pitch darkness for three days where they couldn't even see one another. It said that they didn't even get up from their house for those three days because of this thick darkness that took over Egypt. The most prosperous land being humbled in every single way. And throughout all of these plagues, God repeats, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. He shows his incredible power over Pharaoh by the bringing of these plagues. And he also shows his incredible power by removing these plagues in the land of Egypt. And here's what many commentators actually point out when they look at these different plagues. They, they see that a lot of these plagues actually have a connection and a target of a specific Egyptian god that the Egyptians worshipped. Where there's many gods that, gods that they worshipped, each one of these plagues can be seen as targeting one of them. I'll just share a couple of them. So Happy was the Egyptian goddess of the Nile. One of their praised landmarks around their city, God turned that into blood. Heket was the goddess of fertility, who had the symbol of a frog. And on a lot of pictures of Heket, it would actually have the head of a frog. Seth was the protector of the crops. And Ra, known as the father of all creation, the sun god, was the one who brought light to the world. But then God brought about darkness. What God is communicating in a dramatic way over and over is that I alone am the Lord and I have no rivals. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. So Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? And he quickly finds out those were a, a poor choice of words. Like he quickly finds out he truly didn't know who the Lord was. He didn't understand who he was talking to. So one of the uh, documentaries that swept the nation, I know we all have our favorites, but one of the documentaries that swept the nation two years ago was The Last Dance, all right? So this documentary, uh, for all of you basketball lovers, was the story of Michael Jordan's famous career. And there's so many amazing stories shared in this documentary, but one of the ones that I loved were the stories of people who decided to talk trash to Michael Jordan, and then they found out the result of that, right? And so one of those stories is when the Charlotte Hornets were up against the Bulls in the conference semifinals, and uh, a guy named B.J. Armstrong hit a game winner on Michael Jordan to tie the series 1-1, right? And after he did this, he let everyone know about it. He's yelling at the Bulls bench. He's yelling at Phil Jackson, their head coach. He's yelling at Michael Jordan himself. And everyone in the room, even Hornets players that were interviewed later, are like, this is a bad idea. You should not do that. Because the question became, how was Michael going to respond? And he responded quite convincingly. As they swept him the rest of the series, won the next three games, Michael Jordan scored 27, 31, and 33 points, where B.J. Armstrong got 2, 14, and 5. He almost totaled what Michael got in one of those games, right? Here's what happened. Michael clearly showed B.J. Armstrong who he was talking to. 
He reminded him of who he was talking trash to. And here in this scene, when we see the plagues taking over Egypt, God is reminding Pharaoh who he's talking to. And he's doing it in the most convincing fashion possible. He's saying, there are no rivals to my name. You are not a peer to me. I'm the one that made you. All other gods submit to my reign over the earth. And here is what is true. Our God is a God that never changes. And so that holds true for us today. No matter what is happening in the world, no matter who seems to be in power, no matter how bleak things might be, there is no one like our God. He remains on the throne. Everything is under the power of his name. What area of your life do you need to be reminded that that's the God that you serve? Times where things seem out of control or something is happening that you don't understand, you need to be reminded that God is still on the throne in control of everything that's taking place in your life. So God reveals himself in a mighty way to all of Egypt by the way that he brings these plagues to Pharaoh. And we will see a pretty consistent response from Pharaoh himself as we look at the pride of Pharaoh. And so each time God approaches Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart becomes hardened more and more. Okay, instead of repenting like he should have to the one and only God, what he does is he digs his heels in even more and rebels. Like God gives him 10 chances to repent. Like why did God have to send so many plagues? Why didn't he just do it from the beginning? He gives him 10 chances to repent, but he actually hardens his heart more and more every single time. And there's three specific ways that we see Pharaoh rebelling against God. The first one is that he ignores God. So Exodus 7, 22 through 23, it says, So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into, the house, into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. So Pharaoh clearly rebels by ignoring God altogether, but he also tries to bargain with God. Like, God, I know that you're the one that's in control, but actually, I want to have a say in this. Can we meet halfway? Like, let, let's meet in the middle of this. And so actually in 825, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, go sacrifice to your God within the land. So here's what Pharaoh knew. It was clear what Moses and Aaron were asking. Let the people of God go that they might serve God in the wilderness. That they would go from the rule and reign of Egypt and go under the rule and reign of their God. And Pharaoh tries to meet halfway there. He tries to say, no, you can sacrifice to your gods, but why don't you stay in the land of Egypt under my reign? What he wants is to still be in control of his life. He still wants a say in the matter. So he bargains but because he still wants control, but he also displays false repentance. Okay, so we're going to see a dramatic shift in how he speaks in chapter 9, verse 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So then God relieves them of the hail, 
And then there's a dramatic tone shift in Pharaoh's words as we look at verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So Pharaoh knew the right words to say. He knew the words to communicate to make it look like he had a broken heart, that he was actually confessing and repenting of his wicked ways, but he didn't actually have a broken heart. He confessed his brokenness, but he didn't repent. He didn't truly change his life as a result of that. And so Pharaoh, in all these different ways, is pushing back on the rule of God over his life. And this is something we do all the time. Where we might come before the word of God and we clearly see what he's calling us to, but we ignore it because we think we know better. Or we bargain with God, like, God, you can have my Sunday, but not my Monday through Saturday. I'll I'll serve you with my time, but I want to be the one that determines how I use my money. Or I will trust you completely as long as my life stays easy and comfortable. Where these aren't things that we would verbally say ourselves, sometimes our life communicates those things. And lastly, false repentance. I've seen this in my life where I I plead that hard times would pass from me. And if those hard times would cease, I would dramatically change the way that I would be living. But as soon as life gets easier, I go right back to living the way that I wanted to live. Or maybe I confess sin, but it's not actually out of a heart that's broken for God. I I just feel like it's something I should do to make me feel better about myself. I say the right words, but my life doesn't change. I'm not acting off of a broken heart before God. I just want circumstances to get back to how I want them to be. So we, like Pharaoh, choose to push back, over the, push back from the rule of God in our lives. But as we continue in the story, we have to ask, like, why was Pharaoh's heart hardened before God? Each and every time, well, God clearly gives us an answer to that in chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, God talking to Pharaoh. He's literally saying, this is the reason that I've kept you alive. Like, I could have ended your life a long time ago. This is why you are still standing today. For this reason, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Pharaoh's trying to do everything he can to exalt his own name, and so God becomes a threat to what he wants most. Because Pharaoh's running into a God that actually deserves the glory. And what he fears when he comes into contact with a God like that is that he would lose what he wants most. God is a threat to him because he fears he might lose what he wants most. Okay, I've seen this same spirit in the life of my one-year-old daughter, Zeta, okay? One of her favorite places in all the earth is the fridge. Some of you can relate, all right? So she, she loves the fridge. She loves opening the door, the bright lights, all the food in there, right? And one of her favorite drawers is the drawers that hold the clementines, all right? She's very passionate about clementines. 
And, and here's what she'll do. She'll sneak in there, open up the drawer, and grab a clementine with both of her hands. And then she knows that she's only supposed to have those maybe with meals. Like, she can't just have those whenever she wants. So she looks over, sees me, and then she does this, like, sprint walk thing to the bedroom to get away from my presence. Why? Because she knows if she hangs around me, there might be a threat that I would take what she wants most from her. That would take that clementine, put it back in the fridge, shut the door that she couldn't have it, so she bolts. And some of you might be asking, Drake, are you comparing your daughter to Pharaoh? Yes, yes, I am. And <laughs> if, if some of you have a one to one and a half year old, you understand what I'm talking about, right? And in this story, Pharaoh hardened his heart because he was trying to protect what he wanted most. He felt threatened that his own glory would be stripped from him because there's a God that actually deserves it. And so he wanted to protect that. And we do the very same thing. Out of a heart of pride, we seek to protect the thing that we want more than God because we feel threatened that he might actually ask that to be removed from us. What is that in your life? Like, God, you can have control over my life, but just don't mess with this one thing. Or you can have control of my life as long as you keep blessing me in this area of my life. I'm going to grip onto this thing with everything that I have. Maybe it's become the only thing that you pray about with God, the main thing that you think about, and the thing that causes the rise and the fall of your joy on a day-to-day basis. Whether it is your career, a relationship, image of yourself, image of your kids, which falls back on yourself, whatever it is, we seek to protect the things that we want most, the things that we don't believe God can provide for us. And this pride keeps us from walking in the true repentance that God calls us to. Because we as well come before God with hearts of pride rather than resting in God's care for his people. And we're going to see that in how God protects his people. That brings us to point three, the protection of God's people. And so we're going to look at the last character of this story. I think a lot of focus in this story is on God and Moses going on God's behalf and Pharaoh. But there's another character that you hear throughout the story, and that's the people in the land of Goshen. That is the people of God that has been set apart from the land of Egypt. And earlier, one of the reasons that we saw that God brought about the plagues was so that Egypt would know that he is God. But what we're going to see here is that there's one verse where God uniquely talks to the people of Israel, and he's saying, I'm actually going to show you as well that I am the Lord. By my protection of my people. And so that's in chapter 10, verse 2. So God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh again to tell him about the signs and wonders, this time being the locust. And then he follows with these words, and that you may tell in the hearing of your own son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. I am doing this incredible work so it can be something that all of the people of Israel know and their sons and their grandsons, that this would carry on. And so where chaos is happening in the land of Egypt, there's a calm in the land of Goshen. 
Like, just imagine with me that they are in the comfort of the hand of God in the land of Goshen when they look out and they see all of the livestock dying left and right in Egypt and all of their still standing. They walk around on a beautiful, calm day, maybe a light breeze, and they look out and they see the greatest hailstorm that they have ever seen. Hail and fire destroying everything in that land. So there's the greatest storm in history happening before their eyes, but none of it touching the land that they walk on. And then there's a day where they can't even see Egypt. Darkness has completely completely taken over all of Egypt, where they look out and there's a dramatic wall of darkness that carries on into Egypt, while they themselves walk around in the light of the day. Throughout the story, we see that they look out and see the plagues happening, but they also are seeing the protection that God has for his people. And all of this is God working to let his people go. And I just want to pause for a quick second, because I think we need to remember, like, who are these people that God is seeking to protect through these incredible plagues? What were what were their final words that they cried out to God before God brought about this incredible mission to protect his people? Well, that was back in chapter 5, verse 21. And they said to them, to Moses and Aaron, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. These are the incredible people that God's protecting people that are throwing out accusations to Moses and ultimately to God. Like, do you even care? It just seems like you want us dead, honestly. Like, are you even around God? Are you working? Are you more powerful than Pharaoh? These people seem like they would be the most disqualified people to be protected by the hand of God because they want nothing to do with him, and it's people just like you and me. Because those questions are questions that we know if we look back over the course of our life have left our lips as well. Like, God, do you even care? Are you even present? Because the way that my life is going, it seems like you don't even love me anymore, that you're not present with me in this moment. We as well throw out accusations. We throw out blame. We throw out doubts to this God. Us thinking that we have a clearer picture of how things should go than God himself. And the question becomes, why would God save and protect a people like that? People who themselves rebelled against him, people that didn't serve them themselves. Why would he bring about these great plagues in the land of Egypt to protect that type of people? Six, time God, six times God tells Pharaoh through Moses to let my people go. I think that's a line that all of us famously remember. Like, that is the iconic line of this scene. Let my people go. But we need to realize the next words are just as important. Six times he says, let my people go. And six times next he says, that they may serve me. God wasn't protecting and setting free his people because of their incredible service to him, but in order that they might serve him. God was setting them free out of the incredible kindness of who he is. 
And I want to point out, have you ever noticed a crucial aspect of the timeline of the book of Exodus? The spoiler alert, they get out of Egypt, right? Here is a crucial part of that timeline. The exodus of God's people, or the saving of God's people, happened before they are ever given the law of God, before they're ever given the Ten Commandments. Why is that significant? Because God isn't saving his people because they followed his law so profoundly. They didn't even have it yet. God is saving these people out of a complete kindness for them towards a specific purpose, that they would become the type of people that would serve him with their lives. Or in other words, the saving work happens before the serving work. Both are crucial because God first saves them in order that they would serve him with their lives. So both are crucial for us to understand when we look at what the gospel accomplishes. And Tim Keller talks to this idea specifically in saying these words, the gospel will neither take your sin lightly nor lead you to wallow in guilt indefinitely. Here's what the blood of Jesus accomplishes. It makes it so that you don't have to be a person that's swimming in the guilt and shame of your past brokenness any longer. But he's actually covered that sin completely so you could walk in the freeness of new life. But it's also set you free to walk in the new life that Jesus has called you to. That the old self has died and the new life has come. That you can actually walk as Jesus has commanded you. But here's what we do. Is that we forget one of those two options all the time. And if we only hold to one of those or forget one of those, we're going to fall in one of two ditches. We're going to feel overwhelmed by the guilt of our sin or we're just going to stop fighting that sin altogether. We're, we're not going to seek repentance in our own life. Which one of those ditches do you find yourself leaning more towards? Maybe for some of you the question is, are you currently sitting in the guilt and shame of sin that has already been forgiven? Trying to fight with everything in you, promises that you'll do better next time, where all you need to do is look back at what Jesus accomplished the first time. Because here's what you're doing when you live that type of life. You're flipping the statements. You're saying, I need to serve God in order that he would save me. And God's saying, no, I've saved you in order for you to serve me. It's completely counter to the gospel that we celebrate every single week. And what you need to hear is that when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. You need to remember the first part of that statement. But maybe some of you fall in the other camp. Well, the question for you is, what in your life do you need to repent of? You've been giving lip service to God about sin that is happening in your life, but you're not actually trying to fight it at all. Because if you were honest with yourself, you still want it around. You've convinced yourself that the sin in your life is the thing that you need in order to find joy, where you forget that you're settling for far lesser joys than what Christ has already provided for you. What you're forgetting is the second part of that statement that God has saved you in order to serve him with your life, you're substituting that with God has saved me in order to continue serving myself 
And what you need to hear is that your old life of you being the Lord of your life has died with Christ and he has raised you up to a new life where you can actually serve him with your life. That Christ conquered the grave and he's actually living inside of you to conquer all the sin in your life that is bringing about death in your life. You need to remember the second part, that God has called you to such a greater life, such a greater purpose than to serve your own self. That God saved us in order to be servants of him. Another way to say this is that God invites us to come as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay as we are. He sees the brokenness, he sees the hurt, and he actually wants to make us the type of people that walk more and more in the joy that Jesus has invited us into. So Salt City, would we be the type of people that see that full story that God has saved us so that we could serve him? Would we be the people that respond to the kindness of God by repenting of the old life that we lived and turning and walking in the new life that he's invited us into? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I feel in my own heart so many of those questions, so many of those doubts, so many of those areas of pride taking place in my own life. And how many times do I wrestle with and think, God, I need to do this better. I need to serve you perfectly in order for you to save me. But God, you flipped everything about this world and you flip that statement by saying no i'm going to save you not based on what you have done but completely based on my kindness to you so that you could be the type of person that serves me god help us to be people that understand truly and fully what your blood has accomplished but yeah we are invited into relationship with you and we are invited into the new life that you have welcomed us into would we be people that when we encounter you our lives would not be the same it would give up our old ways of serving ourselves and we would lift up our hands in our life and give you all of the glory because you are worthy of our worship you are worthy of our life Christ, would you make us more like you? Would you help us be that type of people? And when we fall short, would we come running back to you? And in every situation, we give you all the praise. It's in your name we pray. Amen.